we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is, this is a very important passage right here. Philippians is an important book because it talks about life uh, living together in the body of Christ. Let me just read this. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I love that passage. You know, things have changed over the years, and they always do. You know, we always talk about how things are always changing but today, but they always have changed some. And as a pastor, one of the things that I've noticed is how weddings have changed since I began doing them a long time ago. At one time, weddings were so much simpler. Uh, it was, uh, I knew one old man in one town where I lived, and he was talking about when he and his wife got married. They got in his Model T, they drove to the pastor's house, pulled up in front of his house, honked the horn. He came outside. He did a wedding ceremony for them while they sat there in the front seat of the old Model T. He said, we gave him 50 cents and drove off. And he said, you know, we were married for over 50 years. Well, I think he got a pretty good deal. You know, and at one time, it was rather common for a pastor to get a knock at the door at night and there would be some couple there wanting to get married and he would invite them into the living room and... Do the wedding ceremony. I've had that happen to me only twice. And by the way, they're still married. Anyway, but there's other things that have changed. Our ceremonies are usually a lot more complicated. At one time, you know, it was a bridegroom, the preacher, and maybe a best man and a maid of honor. And now people want to have a lot more attendance at the ceremony. Uh, a lot of times the receptions are much more elaborate. But there's one thing that has simplified somewhat, and that is the photography sessions. You know, today, you know, people get a photographer, he's a professional, or she's a professional, they come in and sometimes they start before the wedding begins and they get pictures of the wedding party and all of that before anything else ever starts. And that way, after the ceremony is over with, they can take a few pictures and then everybody can go about doing what they want to at the reception. But that's not the way it used to be. Uh, many times, the, the, if you did hire a photographer, that photographer would show up and he would do most of his picture taking after the ceremony was over with. And not only would he be doing picture taking, other people would be doing the same thing. And I've seen this happen so many times before, but there was where, 
you know, when the photographer, he would set up the shot, he would take a shot, and then there would be 311 different kinfolks, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, and every second and third removed cousin would be there with a Kodak 110 camera, and they would all want to get a shot too. So every pose meant that it was going to take forever just to get everybody satisfied. Well, I was in one town in central Texas where I served as a pastor, and there was there were some people there that we might call just kind of on the rough side, a bit uncouth. They weren't mean people. They weren't criminal people. They were just rough. Anyway, there was one of the girls in this family that she was getting married. And after the ceremony was over with, they announced to the people that were there in attendance, we're going to take pictures. The rest, those of you that don't have to be in the pictures, you go on to the fellowship hall and, uh, and wait, and we'll be in there for the reception. Well, Sure enough, this was one of those typical things, people with their Kodak 110 cameras. The picture-taking session lasted for at least an hour. When they finally got through taking the last picture, probably because they ran out of film, they went in there and found out that the bride's brothers had gotten hungry and they ended up eating all the cake, as well as some other things. Now, to say the least, that caused a bit of a rift in everything, and not everyone was happy. But, you know, it teaches us a lesson. When we don't really work together, we usually end up having problems. Well, that's a lesson for the church, too. The church, the body of Christ, any body of believers in Jesus Christ, is, is composed of many members of various types. And the thing about this that's amazing is that despite this variety and this diversity in a body of believers, they can do amazing things. But in order to, for God to do amazing things through us, we must keep the same focus together. You know, the Apostle Paul had a special relationship with the Philippian church. I believe I've already mentioned this. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers to them as my joy and my crown. And you can't help but read this passage and read the whole letter without seeing that this, this joy in them and his, this love for them and his appreciation for them shows through in nearly everything you read in here. And, and what, I heard one man talking about this one time and I asked him what was it that made this relationship between Paul and this church so special? And he said, well, really, the, one of the reasons was, was that not every church that Paul had begun and wrote letters to for the New Testament uh, had understood what it really meant to suffer persecution, but the Philippian church did. We know that quite clearly because if we back up to chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul said, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now that I still have. In other words... What we see is that this church in Philippi knew what it meant to suffer alongside the Apostle Paul. And so they had this common bond that they had that, uh, that brought them together. They had undergone this suffering. So now, as the Apostle Paul writes this letter, and we begin with chapter 2, <clears throat> he tells the people at Philippi, he urges them, to take this pride and joy that he has in them to a higher level. Notice how chapter 2 verse 1 begins. It begins with the little word so, if you have the English Standard Version. You could say so, or therefore, or wherefore. 
That is, this is how he's instructing this group of believers in Philippi. He's saying this, you are suffering because of your faith in Christ. Now, demonstrate your faith even more. Be of the same mind by seeking to have the mind of Christ. Now, telling people to be of the same mind, t telling people to be united, it's not an easy thing to do. We know that. There's an old Jewish joke that states that if you get two rabbis together, you will end up with three opinions. <laughs> we could say the same thing about most Baptist churches or Methodist churches or any other. Church isn't much better. Sometimes we may be worse. So, how do we accomplish unity among ourselves and how do we maintain unity if it's so important? Well, I think one of the things we must do is we need to reflect on the ground of our unity. That is, what's the soil where unity grows? How does it get started? What foundation do we have for it? And I think we see this in verse 1. Notice how he says that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words... We have to ask ourselves, do we find any encouragement brought on by our relationship with Christ? Does our faith in him, is it, is it a walk? Or is it just a mere matter of words that we profess that we have this relationship with him? Does his, this relationship with Jesus Christ, does it spur us on to a, a higher and nobler level in life? Does it spur us on to greater things and more holiness? That is what it is supposed to do. Knowing Christ should be encouraging. It should exhort us to go forward. Another question is, do we find any comfort from his love? Does it comfort you? Does it assure you to know that he loves you? Do you think about the fact that he does love you? That he has a great love for you? So many times whenever we think about uh, people that we've known in the past, uh, maybe it might be your mother, it may be your late father or a grandmother, something like that. You can say, you can think back on the love that that person had for you and how that love has encouraged you even to this day. Well, the love of Jesus Christ is just as real as any love that you can receive from a relative. And whenever we understand that love, and that love is purer and nobler than any other love that has ever been shown you and me, that should urge us on to unity and to fellowship. That's what it ought to do. Another thing is, is that the question that he says is if there is any participation in the Spirit. What this would mean is this. Is there any living reality found in our fellowship with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit should bring out what we would call the fruit of the Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit should fill us and control us and causing us to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. This is a real thing. In other words, when we talk about knowing Jesus Christ, we should be able to say, I know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in me. He works in me. He has been changing me and he will continue to change me. If we see that going on in our life, the work of the Holy Spirit going on in our life, we are going to strive for this unity that we're talking about here. If that is not something that is a reality to you, it's going to be very difficult for you to ever seek unity or, or desire unity. Here's another thing. Is there any compassion or tender mercies that have a place in our heart? Do we have compassion and tender mercy toward our brothers and sisters in Christ? We should because they're part of the family. Oh, I know. Every group of believers, wherever you are, 
wherever they may be, you're going to find some people that are a little bit more difficult to show compassion to than others. But still, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should have tender mercies for them. We should have compassion for them. Whenever they hurt, we should hurt. Whenever they rejoice, we should rejoice. What this is saying is this. Is that, or what this is asking us is this, if we want to seek unity, is does our relationship with Christ make any real difference in our lives? Or is it just superficial? Is it just something that is hollow? Is our relationship with Christ just a shell that we put over ourselves with nothing underneath it? Is the faith that we profess all form and no function? In other words, how deeply does our faith go? Because the soil in which unity grows is the soil of having a living, breathing, significant relationship with us that goes deep inside of our soul. That is where we start. In other words, what difference does your relationship with Christ make? The second thing is this, is what should we do? We, and how should we start striving for unity? Well, verses 2, 3, and 4 tells us that we need to have a proper focus. And, and it says what we do is this. Is, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now look at verse 3. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In other words, we have to put away self-interest. We, we, we have to refuse that we're not going to be part of factions. We're not going to do anything to promote ourselves. We're not going to be doing anything to accomplish our own aims and goals. We must do nothing to satisfy our own vanity. You know, whenever we see uh, the lack of harmony in a fellowship, what happens is it, it happens because people begin looking at themselves and what they want. They begin, they want to defend themselves. They want to do the things that they want to do. And, you know, goodness, we've all seen it, haven't we? I mean, sometimes when we look back on the past, we almost shake our head and say, I can't believe that a group got upset about something. You know, you've seen it, I've seen it, I guess we've all seen it, in which a church would nearly split over what picture they were going to have behind the baptistry. Or I remember one lady had her stinger out at one church simply because they wanted to change the time of the Sunday night services. Uh, we've seen churches split over what music they were going to sing. And it's not saying that the older people were the ones that caused the split. Sometimes it's the younger ones that did it. You know, isn't it silly the things that we will divide ourselves over? We really should never come to church in order to promote our own agenda. We should come together and form a body of Christ in order to promote the agenda of Jesus Christ. You know, there's other things that people have fought over and, and churches have been split and divided. In other words, you know, I've seen churches that have been split and divided over the doctrine of the second coming. In other words, is Jesus going to come back before the millennium, after the millennium, or are we already in the millennium? And you know what? If that is all that you have to argue about, you're never really focusing on Jesus Christ. Churches have split over which version of the Bible should be used. Once again, you know, that is not focusing on Jesus Christ. These are things in which people are focusing on what they want. 
you know this. I guess we all do, or at least we should. Understand this. The body of Christ is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And it's about us being a part of that body. But it, is, it does not exist in order for us to carry out our own agendas. We have to have the proper focus. And that proper focus is going to begin this way. We're going to humble ourselves before each other. We're going to deny ourselves before each other. Oh, yes, it is not a case in which we say it doesn't make any difference what you believe as long as you're sincere and happy. It does. There are certain things we can't compromise on. We can't compromise on the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of God or the Holy Spirit. We, we can't compromise on the doctrine of Scripture. But there are certain things that are just kind of extraneous matters. And most of the times, the things that cause disunity are really, really minor and, and, and so what we have to do is this, is we have to be noble enough, we have to be humble enough that we are going to say, I will deny myself, I will not promote myself. And then we will say this, is that we will, we will treat others in our fellowship as equal to ourselves. Is that what this passage tells us to do? No, it doesn't. It says, consider others as being better than yourselves. That there's others who may have better ideas. There's others who may have uh, a better attitude. And so that's the way that we will treat others. We will never consider ourselves to be better than other people within the fellowship. And then the next thing is this, is that, uh, and what we should do is we need to adopt the mindset of Christ. We see this in verses 5 through 11. Understand this. This is, this is what we would call the heart of unity. Is that <clears throat> unity here and what he's talking about is having this oneness of mind. Unity does not mean uniformity. It means working toward a common goal. And that is this. Is that if, if we're going to maintain unity with others in the body of Christ, Jesus Christ has to be our focus. He has to be our role model, and his glory has to be our goal. When we do this, the church will thrive. Whenever we won't do it, the church begins to struggle. Now, notice what it's talking about as it describes Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, this little passage right here, in verse 5, beginning in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, those little verses, particularly starting with verse 6, a lot of people today who are a lot smarter than, than I am will, will say that this is part of a hymn or a poem. They say maybe Paul wrote it himself. In other words, the Holy Spirit led him to write this. Some would say that Paul was quoting this, that something that someone else wrote. And we know that he did do this every now and then. When you read his sermon that he preached in Athens at Mars Hill, we notice that he quoted some people in there. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It has nothing to do with, with our view of the inspiration of Scripture. But what we see is this, is that... Uh, 
this could be, they said, if this is a poem or a hymn, this may, was probably the oldest example that we have of a Christian hymn. It's a beautiful thing. But notice it talks about who Jesus Christ is. First of all, it says that what it says about what Jesus is, it says though he was in the form of God, meaning this, Jesus Christ possessed all the essential attributes of God. He always has, and he always will. Jesus Christ has always been God. He was in the beginning with God, and he, has, he is, we would call him God's eternal son. He, never had, he has not been created. He has been eternally begotten. So he, and Jesus possessed all these attributes of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, who was the Word, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, despite the fact that he was always God, eternally the Son of God, despite all of that, he did not consider his position at the bosom of the Father, so to speak, as something that he was going to exploit. But what did he do? Jesus Christ made himself nothing. He laid aside his glory and took on the role, not just of a house servant, but of a bond slave. And then he arrived on the grimy, gritty, godless scene of sinful human existence and he did the unthinkable. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. A humiliating death. A death to pay for the sins of us selfish, petty rebels. That's the model for unity. Jesus is our only model for unity. What Jesus did when he invaded this little world that we live on, what he did was unheard of. It really was. Back in that day, a lot like ours, People recognized powerful conquerors as their heroes. You know, we still kind of had this fantasy type thing of, of superheroes that conquer all the enemies and stuff like that. But they had some real ones back in the first century and even prior to the first century. There were men like Alexander the Great, who was... Uh, who was Greek, and he had, his goal was to conquer the world. And after he felt like he conquered the world, he, the old saying is, or the old story is, is that he wept because there was nothing else for him to conquer. During the time of Jesus, Augustus Caesar was a great conqueror and enabled the Roman Empire to spread even up into northern Europe. People like Alexander the Great and Augustus Caesar were consummate conquerors. What they conquered, they kept. Their lives were about taking, not giving. Their focus was always on themselves and not on their constituents. Their focus was on what can I get for me and what can I do to make myself look better. And if you say, well, that's the way they were back then, yep, but they're still like it today. Present day leaders really aren't that much better. And I'm not trying to be political, but I'm just saying this present day leaders are not much better than, than the ones that have been around for hundreds and thousands of years. The pursuit of power and pomp and prestige is the way that this world's economy works. Look at it this way. Whenever you're going to be, if you, we think of a, a leader of, of a 
country, whether it be in Europe or whether it be in Asia or whether it would be in Africa or whether it would be here in the good old USA. If he shows up, he's not going to be dressed in, in uh, a, a suit that's kind of shiny at the seat and worn in the knees. He's not going to be wearing a cheap white shirt that he got at Target. He's not going to be uh, wearing a, a crummy tie that's been out of style for a long time. He's not going to pull up in front of your house driving a 1977 Ford Pinto station wagon. That's just not the way the leaders are. They're going to always look sharp and they're going to look at their best simply because with them it's about prestige. It's about it's about uh, pomp because that's where the power is because that's the way that the world's economy works. But it's not the way of the kingdom of God. And folks, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that's going to last. In Revelation chapter 11 verse 15, there's this statement, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Folks, what Jesus did whenever he died upon the cross, whenever he came into this world and died upon the cross, was shocking. It was something that only God would do. And it's something that only God could do. Verses 6, like I said, verses 6, certain verse 6, it may be a little hymn. And our hymn continues where it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why is Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords? It's because he humbled himself as he did. And because of who he is and because of what he has done, Jesus is our only role model. And he is our only proper focus and he is our only strength, and he is our only wisdom. As for us, you know this, we find our greatest purpose and satisfaction in life when we bring honor to God. We do. We know this has to be true because we're created in his image, and when we honor God, we find our greatest purpose and satisfaction. And the only way for us to bring honor to God is this, is that first of all, we have to humble ourselves before him. And we're not going to humble ourselves before him until we become obedient to him. And we will never become obedient and humble before God until we become willing to be humble before our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, folks, this is something that every body of believers needs to concentrate own constantly, constantly. We're living in a, in a society that is so different. A society that likes to argue, a society that likes to litigate. We, 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 we are. And this type of stuff bleeds over into a church. And, it, and so all churches, all of our churches have to be on guard at all times that we make Jesus Christ our glory. We make him our focus we make him the one that we want to reflect in all that we do. And therefore, let us be God's joy and crown. You'll be glad that you did. Let's pray together. Our Lord, 
We thank you for these instructions in your word. And Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example that he sets before us. And Lord, in our hearts, we want to do this. We know it's difficult. But Lord, we realize that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can lead us on to do it. And Lord, we pray that this church would continue to be a lighthouse in this community. Lord, we pray that all of our churches in Henderson and in Russ County would be lighthouses to the people around them so that we could lift up the name of Jesus Christ and that we will strive together to promote him, to promote him as the source of all life. So Lord, now go with us this day as we go about the duties that, that are laid out before us. Lord, let us be focused upon you in all that we say and in all that we do. Lord, we love you. We're thankful that you love us, and we're thankful for the love that we share with one another here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.